Hey, I have the honor to introduce you Jerry Neville, and he has been on staff with us about six, seven weeks now. Um, not 67 weeks, because that would be a long time. Not yet, but he'll get there. Um, I'm confident that he'll last that long. Um, so he, him and his wife and his four kids uh, moved up here, and I'm so glad that, the, that God brought them here. Uh, Barry's been a great fit. He uh, loves you guys. I don't know if you know that. He may not have met you yet, but he loves you, um, and he loves well. And uh, he is just a lot of fun to have in the office. Um, he's brought a lot of laughter, and Terry's just so great. I'm so glad he's here. So you welcome Jerry as uh, up to the stage. <laughs> That's good. You got three. Are there any Parks and Rec fans out there? So I've never seen Park and Re- Parks and Rec. I'm more of an office guy. And, um, but I've learned that there's a character, and I really didn't even know what the character's name is. It's either Gary or Jerry, but nobody ever gets his name right. And that's been the joke on me since I've been here at Genesis. I get, if you notice, she said Terry, Barry, Larry, and only Jerry one time. And so uh, if you don't know what to call me, just call me some variation of that. What's funny is when people mix my name up, they usually say Jeff, which I don't get. Jeff doesn't rhyme with any of those. So I, I don't get that. But I am. I'm the new guy here. We've been here for six or seven weeks. I want to take a moment before we jump into the message to just let you know how thankful I am to be a part of the Genesis staff family and how grateful my family is to be a part of, of Genesis. Um, you might not know this, but <clears throat> I come from the same church in Louisville, Kentucky that our lead pastor, Paul Mumal, and our disciple-making pastor, Kevin Russell, come from. And I have known those guys for several years. I love and respect them as men, as husbands, as fathers, and as pastors. And so when Paul called me earlier this year about an opportunity to serve here, I was really excited. First of all, I just think the world of, of Paul and to get to work with and for guys like that and Steve and, and even Ben Krause. Ben Krause isn't too bad. But even everybody on our team is great. And here's what you need to know. They love Jesus. That has been so encouraging to me. Not, not surprising, but the way that they love Jesus. And they love what they do and they love all of you. And so it has just been really good for me to come to get to watch and learn from such a great staff team. And then my family, you know, as you might expect, we have four kiddos. The church we were at was the only church they had ever known. And we were anxious as parents to come and to, to, to become part of Genesis. But can I tell you, they, they love it. They love Miss Benita, their teacher. They talk about her all the time. And so many of you have helped us feel welcome here. So thank you for being patient with me when I can't remember your name. Don't honk at me when I'm lost in a roundabout. Just be patient. I'm getting there. I've only been honked at once, but I've probably been deserved to be honked at a lot more than that. But we, we are so thankful just for, for all of you welcoming us. Um, Genesis is really starting to feel like our church home, and so we're, we're grateful for that. So my family is from southern Indiana. When I say southern Indiana, I mean like on the border between Indiana and Kentucky. And um, it might surprise you, though, to know that I have a little bit of a connection with Hamilton County and with Carmel in particular. So I went to Floyd Central High School. Anybody in here know where Floyd Central High School is? I wouldn't expect many of you to know, but here's what you need to know. At Floyd Central, we know where Carmel High School is. You know why? Because Carmel has a reputation of being good at just about everything all the time, right? And I ran cross country for Floyd Central, and we were the best team in Southern Indiana when I was there. Uh, we, We had a great program. We won state one year. And so we would come up to to Indianapolis on the weekends to race the best competition in the state, and Carmel was often at, at, those, at those meets. And we came into every meet with two primary objectives. One, just we want to run our best race. So if we could leave knowing that we had done our best, we would, we would feel good, and we just wanted to beat Carmel. 
And it wasn't like a mean thing. It was just we knew if we could beat Carmel or even be competitive, we knew that we were doing well. Well, okay, over four years, I estimate that we raced Carmel 30 to 40 times. Guess how many times I remember beating Carmel? One time. You do not have to be a stats nerd to know that is terrible, terrible statistics. But here's what's really cool. Here's the silver lining. The one year, the one time that I remember beating Carmel was my senior year, and it was our very last race, and it was at the state meet in 1995. And if you're competitive at all, if you're never going to beat this, this team that you want to beat more than anything, you want to beat them the last time that you're out there. And at the 1995 state meet, they finished 10th and we finished 6th. It was our second best finish in our school history. And it was like winning state for us. And so I don't say that for any other reason other than say, we beat you, okay? Fair and square. We beat you one time. I'm done. I retired. That's why I retired. I, I just, I had a fifth year of eligibility. I mean, you don't get that in high school, do you? So now, I don't tell this story often because it seems like I'm bragging, but that year as an individual, I made a huge contribution to our, to our team because that year at the state meet, um, I finished as an individual second to last. Second to last in the state of Indiana at the meet. It was, it was painful. It was not fun for me to know that I was not doing, doing well. Uh, it helped a little bit to know that my team finished very well. I can't figure out why my coach allowed me to run, to be honest with you. There were other guys that were just as... Well, just as they were way better than me. Okay, let's be honest. The only thing I can figure is uh, my parents were cross-country parents all four years. They had a huge van and they carted kids and stuff for four years. And I think my coach said, bless their heart, I owe it to them. He deserved, I don't care how bad he is, I owe it to them. And it, you know, it hurt, but I got over it because we, we did so good. And then it came time for the end of the year banquet. You know, when you get together and you eat and you get the awards and all those things. And we had a compilation video of the year. Now, this was in VHS days, okay? There weren't multiple edits. You did it one time, and that's what you got. Well, someone took a picture of me running at the state meet, and they had the golf cart that collects the dead people off the course that don't finish in the picture with me in the video. It was like, yay, look how good we did. And Jerry was on our team, too. I mean, it was, it was just it was embarrassing. And so needless to say, I, I've, I've given up running. I don't run anymore. I don't like to run. I, I never actually really liked Running. And so imagine how I felt when Paul called me and said, Hey, we'd love to talk with you about being part of the Genesis family. I'm like, Oh, this is great. There's an opening at our Carmel campus. And all I heard was, Jonah, go to Nineveh. I was like, No, I can't. Oh, but then I got over those. I was like, Ah, that's petty. Forget that. But then I realized that running is a thing up here. Like it's a thing in Hamilton County and it's a thing at Genesis Church. In fact, one of you last week in the lobby, true story, we're sitting on the cafe and this lady says, now you know that Paul's gonna recruit you to run, right? I'm like, no, that ain't, got, no, don't worry about it. Now, Paul and I live in the same neighborhood. I saw him twice this week and he said, hey, you should start running. We could be running buddies. And I'm like, it'd be a good way to reconnect with Paul. And I'm like, no, I came to my senses. I'm like, no, Paul, I'm not gonna do that. I went and bought a bike and said, I'm not gonna become, I'm just not gonna do it. But it's not just Paul. Steve, Steve has a sickness. Steve runs way too much. A couple weeks ago, our day off is on Friday. He went for a 20-mile run, and I prayed for him. I'm like, God, something's wrong. He's broken. This doesn't work well. He's in great shape. He doesn't need, he doesn't need to do this. I think he's like Forrest Gump. One day, he's going to get up. He's going to take off running, and we're going to find him in Arizona. We're going to be like, Steve, you need to, Benita's asking where you're at. You have to go home. But it's not just Paul, and it's not just Steve. 43 of you, I'm not going to point fingers one of them is over, or right over here. 
43 of you are doing this marathon, mini marathon for Team World Vision, which two things to say. First of all, what a great cause, right? If you're going to do it, that's a great cause. Good for you. Secondly, what is the matter with you? Ride a bike, walk, drive a car. You do not have to run. Have you ever seen a runner look like they're having fun? They, the look on their face says, kill me. I hate this, right? So here's the deal. Given that that's my connection, with Hamilton County and Carmel, and given that running's kind of a thing here at Genesis, I thought it might be fun and even appropriate as we wrap up this series, Humans of the Bible, by looking at a human in the Old Testament that was actually a world-class runner. His name is Elijah, and if you don't know much about Elijah, you're in for a treat because this guy's life was incredible. He's like the Jason Bourne of the Old Testament. There wasn't anything he couldn't do. He stared down challenges all the time. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings is like in the middle of your Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the floor, either in front of you or behind you. That is our gift to you. Um, and on that, in that Bible, you can turn to page 245. That is 1 Kings 17. <clears throat> so while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about Elijah. If you're not familiar with him, this is his, this is his resume. He predicted, his, his story begins by predicting a three-year flood. And then he goes and he raises a widow's only son from the dead. Then he goes and challenges 450 prophets to a winner-take-all duel. The loser dies. Then he prays and fire comes from heaven. Then he prays again and God sends rain to end the drought. And then after all of that, God gives him superhuman strength to outrun a horse-drawn chariot for 25 miles. And he gives the horse and the king, a head start. That, that's a world-class runner. That's a world-class athlete. Does anybody remember a few weeks ago when Michael Phelps challenged the great white shark to a race? Does anybody remember this? I remember thinking, dude's going to get eaten. Why would you do that? But if anybody could do it, it would be Michael Phelps. And he lost the race, but he got out of the water and he said, had the water been warmer, I think I could have done it. Now, if anybody other than Michael Phelps says that, you're like, bless your heart, right? But Michael Phelps could do it. Well, apparently Elijah... God gave him the strength to be that kind of athlete. But get this, that's not the end of his amazing story. Because 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us he didn't die. God sent a fiery chariot from heaven to come and scoop him up and to take him away. And then get this, 800 years later, 800 years after being taken to heaven, alive in a fiery chariot, he shows up and has a conversation with Jesus. Who is this guy? Jesus takes his disciples to this mountain and there's an event called the Transfiguration where three of the four gospel writers record this. They go to the top of the mountain, and when they're up there, God's glory is revealed through Jesus. His clothes are bright and shining like the sun. There's a cloud that surrounds them, and God himself speaks from heaven and says, that is my son right there. Obey him. And the, the disciples look up, and there's Jesus, and he's talking to Moses, and he's talking to Elijah. That is a fascinating life story. That's incredible. And I love watching documentaries about people like Elijah. But if I were to be honest with you, I always think when I meet someone like that or I hear about someone like that, I think, I have nothing in common with you. My life is predictably boring, right? Nothing. In fact, if I were to pray for fire, God would send rain. And if I were to pray for rain, God would send fire. That's just how that works for me. I, I cannot relate to him. But here's what's interesting, and you might be encouraged to know this. As fascinating as Elijah's life was, there's one aspect of his life that you and I can relate to 
on a very regular basis. And you might be surprised, it's, it's, it's not just monthly or weekly, it could very well be daily for us. And so we're gonna take a look at his life and see what we can learn. But here's the thing, this, this life application has everything to do with running. Believe it or not, it has everything to do with running. And so let me tell you a little bit about what was going on in the nation of Israel during Elijah's day and age. So you've probably heard of David. David was the greatest king that Israel had ever had. And when David died, uh, Israel was a world superpower. No one wanted to mess with Israel. Well, when David died, his son Solomon becomes king. And Solomon was known to be the wisest man that lived on the earth up to that point. And, and I think he was really wise, but he wasn't very smart because his plan to expand the kingdom was to marry a thousand different women from different countries. That doesn't sound wise to me. That sounds very chaotic and dangerous, right? But not only was it unwise, it caused him to be spiritually lazy because eventually he began to worship the false gods of his wives. And it angered God to the point that God said, no more, I'm gonna split the kingdom of Israel into two. There's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom. They did not play well together. They didn't like each other. And so that happened. And then 50 years later, Elijah steps onto the scene, okay? So Israel was a hot mess in the day of Elijah. But here's one other thing that you need to know about those days. There was a man named Ahab who had been chosen to be king of the northern kingdom. And this is what 1 Kings 16 tells us about Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, that was just one of the other kings, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First Ahab built a temple and an altar to Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings in Israel before him. Now, if you get one paragraph about your life in the Old Testament, do you want it to be that paragraph? You do not, right? There's nothing good to be said about Ahab. He was wicked. He was evil. Uh, his wife, Jezebel, is, is the same. And if you don't know anything about Jezebel, here's, do not name your kids Jezebel. Don't name your daughters Jezebel. It is, not a good, it is not a good thing. But here's the big thing that he did. He built an altar and a temple to a god, a Phoenician and Canaanite god named Baal. Now, Baal was the chief male deity of the Canaanites, and it was believed that he was a storm god. And so what that meant was they would worship him and, and make offerings to him because they believed if Baal was, was happy, he would allow it to rain, and the crops would be fertile, and everybody would have what they needed, and everybody would be happy, right? And if Baal wasn't pleased, he would withhold the rain. Now, there's another part about Baal being the storm god is he could send lightning down to the earth. He could zap people. Now, all of that is very important to know in this story. So hold on to what you know about Baal there. That's how 1 Kings 16 ends. Look at how 1 Kings 17 begins. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, we don't know anything else about Elijah. He just steps onto the scene we only know the town that he lived in. And he went face to face to the king and said, hey, you need to know God is not pleased. The God that you built the temple and the altar to is not a real God. And God wants you, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel wants you to know that he's gonna withhold rain and the dew. There will be no moisture in Israel for a long time. He wants you to learn your lesson. And that is exactly what happens for three years. There is a, three years, there's a tremendous flood. 
Now, I want you to imagine that you're Ahab. Three years go by. You're the king. There's no water anywhere. Would you be a little panicked? I would. I'd be panicked. I'd be angry. I'd be upset. In fact, if you read through 1 Kings 18, you learn that Ahab is sending people throughout the entire kingdom to look for water for the livestock. It is getting desperate. And it's at this point that God speaks again to Elijah and says, hey, I need you to do something. Look at 1 Kings 18, uh, verses 1 and 2. Later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now this is good news, right? I mean, if you're Elijah, you're thinking, oh, cool. I get to be the guy that says, hey, look, I know that God was mad at you, but, but he's going to take it away. It's going to be okay, right? I've got some good news for you. You would think that Ahab would be glad to see Elijah. Well, look at verse 17. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Now, I have a good friend of mine that, that has taught me this principle that pain is associated with a person. When we go through pain in life, typically we associate it with someone. And for Ahab, that someone was going to be Elijah. He was blind to the fact that his worship of this false god was what was really causing the problem, but he was blaming Elijah. He was taking out all of his anger on Elijah. Now, and I don't know about you, I don't like to be called names, right? I can, I can live with a lot of things, but that's when my anger starts to go up. And apparently Elijah didn't like that either because he responds and says, hey, okay, you think you, think you know so much? Well, I'm going to challenge all 450 of your prophets to a duel. And it's winner take all. If I win, I live. If I lose, I die. And not only does Ahab take him up on this deal, look at what it, uh, verse 20, look at what it says. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets, get this, to a place called Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Now, here's what's interesting. He's already challenged Ahab man to man. Now he is challenging all of Israel who showed up for the show, every person and all the prophets of Baal to say, hey, you can't limp between this and that. You need to decide who you will worship. And then look what he says, verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. And then look at what Elijah says. He said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. There's many of you. So he sets the rules. Everybody agrees. And he says, I'm a gentleman. You guys go first, right? And so the prophets of Baal, they go. Now they start to worship and, and make offerings and sing and dance. And an hour goes by and nothing. Two hours, nothing. Three hours, nothing. And so now Elijah's feeling pretty good. And he says, hey, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he went on a trip. One of the translations says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy. And he just taunts them. And so they, then they get really serious and they, they resort to this, they resort to cutting. They begin to cut their bodies and bleed to, in order to get Baal's attention. And there's no response for hours. And so just picture this after, I don't know, let's say six hours of this. The prophets of Baal, they are bloody, 450 men just strung out everywhere. 
They're exhausted. And Elijah says, now it's time. Look at what he says um, in verse 30. Elijah called, the, called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said, now get this, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Now this is a drought. First of all, praying for fire during a drought is not a good idea. But if you do have water in a drought, you want to make sure you have enough water to drink, right? And if you do have water left after you have enough water to drink, I'm going to hold on to the water that I have because if fire does fall from heaven, I want to be able to put it out. I want to get out of there alive. Elijah says, bring those four jars, pour it on there. Once, twice, three times. The people have got to be thinking, what is this guy? This is, by the way, this, if you know how to start a fire, I don't start good fires well. This is not, I know this is not the way to start a fire, Okay. And all the water fills up the trench. And then he does the only thing that he could do at this point. He prays. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately, picture this, immediately, not lightning, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and it burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench and the people saw it. They fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. And revival breaks out in Israel. And needless to say, Elijah won the battle that day. And the next thing he does, he has all 450 prophets slaughtered. And then he begins to pray for rain, and rain comes, and then he starts his career as a marathon runner. Look at verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 45 through 48. And soon the sky was black with clouds. Now remember, it has not rained for three years. All of this happens in a day. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave strength to Elijah, special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. That's like a 25 mile run and not the flattest terrain. And he gave the king a head start. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment that you were Elijah. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty good. Everything is going my way. When God speaks, I can hear him. When I speak, God responds. I've done my job because revival has broke out and, and, and the people are worshiping the God of Israel. All of my enemies have been slain. I am walking on top of the world. And on top of that, God says, hey, you're gonna be a marathon runner. Go on, go, run. I mean, that, that, that's just amazing. But here's what's interesting. This is where he starts his career as a runner, and this isn't the last time that we see him running. And the next time Elijah goes on a run, it's the kind of run that I can relate to. It's the kind of run that normal people like you and I do all the time. Look at 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 4. Now picture this. Ahab's coming home to Jezebel. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. Here's the picture. It's raining. Jezebel's probably thinking, oh, 
thank Baal, it's raining, right? Woo. And he comes, honey, how was your day? It's raining. And he says, it was not good. The rain's not a good thing because Elijah's God did that, not our God. And by the way, all of our prophets are dead, right? And just imagine, you can look, Jezebel tenses up. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now, Elijah has just faced down 451 men, the king and 450 prophets. Why would he be afraid of one woman? If you're married, you know the answer to that question. I don't know what was going through Elijah's head. God had been with him. He had fought for God. You would think he would stand his ground. Look at what he does, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. He dropped off his servant there, and then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. Now, this time when he was running, it wasn't with God's strength. It wasn't for his health. He was running for his life. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this, because when life blows up unexpectedly, when things get overwhelming, there are two things you can count on me doing, running and hiding, and a lot of times I do both. I just, I go into freak out mode. In fact, I bet if we were willing to stop right now and we were to just to open up to one another, I bet we could identify a few things, people, events that we're running from. In fact, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to help us to identify those things before we move on. Would you pray with me? Father, up to this point, I can't really relate to Elijah's story, but right now I can. He's on the run for his life. <laughs> Father, that's the story of humanity. This is where we get to see just how human Elijah is. So would you please, Holy Spirit, bring to our minds right now what it is that we're running from, what it is, who it is. Help us to think about how long we've been running, where are we running to, what, where are we going? because that is what we see in Elijah's life. Would you help us to identify those things so that in turn, we can learn how to overcome that? We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you run from? Is it a relationship that's been deteriorating for a long time and now all the little things are big things and you just fight about everything all the time? And you just, it's just easier to want to run and hide and to pretend that it's going to go away. Or maybe you've already thought, I'm out. I'm running. They don't know yet, but I'm out the door. Maybe it's your finance, finances. They've been a mess for, for way too long because you've been projecting a lifestyle that you can't afford. Meanwhile, you just keep running up the debt and you're hiding behind a persona that's not even real or sustainable. Maybe you're running from reality you're indulging in a, in a secret addiction or a habit or an inappropriate relationship. You're poisoning your body. You're hardening your heart. And eventually you know it could cost you everything. You just keep running. Maybe you're on the run because someone's done something to you. You're exhausted from running. You're tired of hiding. You're lonely. You just feel like damaged goods. And it's easier to run and to hide than to let anybody else in to deal with it. Now, I don't know about you, but that relates to me. I, I can relate to that. In fact, one of the ways I can tell that I'm on the run or getting ready to run, I start to ask some questions of God with some serious passion. And they typically sound something like this. God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? How long is it going to be like this? Are you mad at me? Is this ever going to change? 
You ever prayed a prayer like that? You just think, come on, God. Now, I know he's big enough for me to ask all those questions. But I don't wait for his answer. I just take off on a run. And so if you can relate to that at all, I want to invite you to write a question down on your sheet of paper. Because I think this is the question that Elijah is looking for. Here it is. What is the best thing that I can do when I realize that I'm on the run? What's the best thing? Not just anything. What is the very best thing that I can do when I realize that I am on the run from someone or something? I think that is the question that Elijah is trying to answer, even if he's not asking it out loud. Look at 1 Kings 19, verses 4 through 9. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. This guy just put his life on the line. And now he's afraid because someone is threatening him. And he's saying, God, just take me. Just wipe me out. Get me out of here. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. That is Old Testament Jimmy John's right there. Freaky fast. He lays down. He wakes up. You need have a bite to eat, right? Probably a number 12. That's my favorite. Look at verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord. Now, it is believed, some commentators believe that the angel of the Lord, this could be the pre-incarnate Jesus. Just think, if you're Elijah, Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead of you will be too much. So he got up and he ate and he drank a second time and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that God knew that Elijah was on the run? We know that he does. He sends an angel twice. Do you think God knew why Elijah was running? Here's the tricky part. Do you think God knew how long Elijah was going to run? The angel says, hey, you're freaking out. This is my translation, KJV, King Jerry version. <laughs> you're freaking out. You're going to be freaking out for a while. You should probably eat. It, it would be good for you to eat. Now, I don't know what you're running from, but I find comfort in that. God knows. God knows that he, he knows how long I've been running. He knows where I'm going to run out and just fall flat on my face. And the angel says, go ahead and, and eat. And he keeps going for 40 days and for 40 nights. But look at where he goes, Mount Sinai, or maybe your translation says Mount Horeb. If you're not familiar with that place, well, you, you might be and you might not even know it. In Exodus 19, God speaks to Moses when he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And he says, I want you to tell all of them to meet me at Mount Sinai. And so all, now remember, they've left slavery in Egypt. They gather around this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God says, I want them to see who I am. And God reveals his glory to Israel. And he does it by raining down fire. He basically sets the top of the mountain on fire. Just imagine a pillar of fire coming down out of heaven. And then a black cloud comes with thunder and lightning. And the people at the bottom are watching this. And then God says, Moses, come up here. And when Moses goes up, he gives them the Ten Commandments, the law of God. This is a sacred place. So why do you think that Elijah is running to this place? Maybe he thinks that's the only place that God can be found. Maybe he has forgotten that God was with him 
all the way. God's not like Baal. He is available all the time, but maybe he forgot that and he just runs and says, God, I'm just going to go to the one place where I know that you've been found before. And he goes to Mount Sinai and God is very gracious with him because God begins to talk with him when he gets there. When he wakes up the next day, uh, 1 Kings 19.9 says this, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now that'd be kind of a frustrating question. What do you mean, what am I doing here, God? And this is what Elijah basically says. Remember we were up doing the work and you said to tell him that it wasn't going to rain and I did that and then you said that it was going to rain and I did that and I killed all the prophets of Baal. And, but then what about when Jezebel said she was going to kill me? Where were you then? He just kind of, he just tells God all the stuff that God already knows. And God, I think God might have snickered a little bit and he said, okay, you come all, you've come all the way here to see me. Look at how he responds. Okay, okay. I want you to go out. This is uh, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 13. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. Now, you've probably heard this story before, right? And we always learn from this story that, that if you listen, you can hear God in a gentle whisper. But there's more to this story. Look at what Elijah does in verse 14. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. You know why he wrapped his face in his cloak? The Old Testament taught that if you were to see God with your eyes, he's so holy, you'd fall down dead. He wraps his face in his cloak and he goes to stand out at the entrance of the cave and look at what God whispered to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? That'd be kind of a frustrating thing to hear. Again, after a 40-day journey, you've run all the way here to see God and suddenly God acts like he doesn't know what's going on in your life. Have you ever been there? Come on, what do you, what do you mean what am I doing here? I have asked for your help with this thing. I have asked you to help me not do this. What do, you, what do you mean, what am I doing here? Maybe the better question is, where are you when I need you? I can relate to that. I may have said that a time or two. But again, God is so gracious. He's so patient with Elijah. Look at verse 15. This is how God responds to him. Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way that you came. Now, those are pretty important words. In fact, those words are the answer to the question, what's the best thing that you can do when you realize that you're on the run? It's really simple. Just go back the way that you came. Go back the way that you came. Why did God say, he, he didn't say, well, just go back and start life someplace else. He doesn't say, I want you to go back whenever you feel like it. He says, I want you to go back the same way that you got here. Now, I want you to imagine that right now, as soon as service is over, you are going on vacation. And let's say you're going to Florida, and, and you're going to jump in your car, and you're going to punch in the address, and you're going to have a couple of options. There'll be a 12-hour option, a 14-hour option, or a 16-hour option. Which option are you going to take to get to vacation? You're going to take 12 hours, right? You don't want to mess with any traffic, and I'm sure the scenery is great. I want to get to the beach, right? 
Now I want you to imagine that you're running for your life and there was a place that you knew that you could run. Would you waste any time getting to that place? I wouldn't. I would get there at all costs. And I think what God is saying is, hey, come here, Elijah. I know, I know you've been on the run. Come here, come here, come here. Just calm down, quit freaking out. I need you to go back the same way that you got here. As fast as you got here, I need you to go back there. Because what Elijah didn't realize was that God wasn't done with him. In fact, he says, I need you to go and disciple the next guy that's gonna replace you. And I also need you, you're gonna anoint the next king because everything's a mess back there, but you cannot check out on me, Elijah. I need you to go back the way that you came. Now that makes sense for Elijah. He had gone on a 40-day journey, right? What does that mean for me and you though? What does going back the way that we came actually look like? Well, relationally, it probably means that we can't shut that person out that has hurt us or that we have hurt. We can't just start over with a bunch of new relationships. We can't marry a new one or just adopt a bunch of different ones. We have to deal with the ones we got. God says, lean in to the pain where the pain is. I will go with you, but I need you to go back that way. Or maybe financially, it doesn't mean that you get a new credit card, you put everything on that credit card, and all of a sudden your bills are consolidated. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that you start to live within your means and you, and you get on a budget and you start to get out of debt. Maybe you get an extra job. Maybe you start to sell stuff and you begin to honor God with your money for his kingdom instead of your own. Or maybe if you have an addiction or maybe you're, it's, a, it's a sketchy business practice or an inappropriate relationship, here's what you're gonna need to do. You're going to have to go to somebody and say, I have a problem, and I clearly cannot solve it on my own. Can I just tell you, this is a safe place. Find me, Steve, Ben. Find somebody that you trust and say, hey, I got this issue. We've got counseling resources. We want to help you. But don't be like Elijah and go run off all by yourself and think you can fix it. He couldn't, and neither can you, neither can I, neither can any of us. The New Testament talks about this principle that we learn here as repentance. And repentance, is, it's a really simple principle. When you realize you're walking away from God, what God wants, you just do a U-turn and you walk right back towards him. I mean, basically what God is saying is, hey, Elijah, repent, go back, go back that way. And no matter what you're running from, no matter how long you've been running, God, Jesus is just saying, hey, I'm calling you to repent. Do you think Elijah was nervous when he heard that? I would be. I'm like, oh, okay, you're God. She's Jezebel. I, I know I need to listen to you. I think he was probably nervous. And, and I don't think things always went his way. And I bet the, the trip back was probably kind of humiliating. I beat myself up over stuff like that. Like, oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe I did this, right? But we can relate to Elijah's story. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't go back. And so here's my question for you. Are you willing to draw a line on the sand today before you leave and say, okay, God, I've identified the thing. I have been running for so long. I'm exhausted. I cannot do this anymore. Would you be willing to do whatever it was going to take to go back the way that you came? Because I think what Elijah found when God scooped him up in that fiery chariot, it was all worth it. And I don't know, we don't know how our lives are gonna end, but I would much rather look back and say, I'm so glad I went back when he called me back. And so maybe, maybe you've been investigating Jesus for a long time. Maybe it's time to turn to him.
Maybe you've been putting off baptism for a long time. We'd love to have that conversation with you in the baptism class next week. Maybe it's time for you to go home to your spouse and say, I am sorry. Can we work on this? I do not know. I know what it is for me. I have a couple relationships I need to deal with. But would you be willing to go back the way you came and to trust that Elijah's God, the God that started the drought, the God that ended the drought, the God that sent the food, would be willing to do and is powerful enough to do the same thing for us? I think we would nod our heads and say, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, let's lean into that, God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for Elijah's story. Some of it is just fascinating to read and to think about and to think, man, I just doesn't even, it doesn't even compute that there are humans like that that live that kind of life. But this running thing, we all do it. <laughs> Jesus, that's why you came because we run. Adam and Eve did it in the garden. They, they sinned and they hid. And right away, God, you said, I got, a, I got an answer for that problem. Jesus, you know how long we've been running. You know what we're running from. You know when we'll run in the future. You know the paths that we love to run on. Would you help us to walk in repentance with you? Would you help us to lean into the life that you have for us through your spirit, for the glory of your name? Would you make us aware when we are worshiping something that is not you, when we are building our kingdom instead of yours? Would you help us to go back the way that we came so that we could meet you and we would allow you to do the work in our life that you promised to do in the first place? We love you and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.